It didn't take me too long in ministry to realize the main question that I'd be facing as a pastor. Not just the main question that I'd be trying to help others answer, but the main question that I'd be trying to answer for myself. It was 2015, and it was my second year on staff with Campus Outreach at the University of Kentucky. And I spent my first two years on campus really trying to build relationships among a certain group of fraternity men. And that's what I did. When your only job is to build relationships, you get close to people pretty quickly. It was my full-time job to meet these guys, to have lunch with them, to play basketball with them. It was a, it was a pretty good job. And so I got to know them really well, really quickly. I got to know almost the entire fraternity. Then early one morning in April of 2015, I got a phone call when I woke up that one of those men, John Kruger, had been shot and killed coming home from a bar that night. It was a robbery that had gone wrong, a silly prank that got out of control, and it was so shocking. It was so shocking to me. It was so shocking to his fraternity brothers. And the next day, not knowing really what to do, we went to the candlelight service, the Newman Center on campus, to honor his death. And when I got there, one of his fraternity brothers was hanging out outside. He just couldn't bear himself to go in and see him. And when I got there, I I went to give him a hug, and he just fell into my arms, and he was sobbing. And I'll never forget the question he asked me. He said, where is Jesus in all of this? And that is the question, isn't it? Whether you're a Christian in here this morning that's been walking with Jesus your entire life, whether you just were invited as a guest and you don't really know a lot about any of this Jesus stuff, the question we all have at some point in our life is, where is Jesus right now? Where is Jesus in this that I'm going through? You see, as a church, we can talk a lot about what Jesus has done in the past, what he's done in his life and his death and how important that is, and it is important. We'll talk about what Jesus has done in the future, what he will do in the future, his second coming when he comes to make all things new and right. But we are oftentimes confused, especially in times of pain and suffering. Where is Jesus right now? What is he doing in the present? And how am I going through this if he really is in control? This is why the ascension is so important for us this morning. Our passage this morning is on Jesus' ascension, and our passage this morning is going to answer that heart-deep question, is where is Jesus? Luke is going to teach us three things about the ascension. He's going to teach us the confusion of the ascension. He's going to teach us the confidence of the ascension. And he's going to end with showing us the comfort of the ascension. And I'll go through those one by one. First... The confusion of the ascension. Look back at the end of our passage and especially notice the disciples' response to Jesus departing from them. Verse 51, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The disciples in this passage, after seeing Jesus ascend into heaven, depart and they immediately want to worship They immediately are filled with great joy. But if you remember the gospel story, they didn't start there. They might have ended with joy, but they began with tons and tons of confusion. 
In fact, six verses earlier, if you look back at Luke 24, 45, they were so troubled with doubts in their heart that Jesus again had to help their minds understand the Scriptures. Remember back to what we looked at the last couple weeks in John 14 through 17 when Mark has been teaching us about the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Jesus took the upper room discourse, the last moments before his death, over and over again, trying to explain to the disciples and answer their one central question, Jesus, why are you leaving? He spent so much time trying to help them understand their confusion of, Jesus, why are you going away? Jesus had been telling them, it's good for me to go away. I must go, I must go away. But if we're honest here this morning, that makes no sense. It makes no earthly sense for our Savior to go away. The whole thing is about Jesus. Why would you now exit? That's why in Acts 1, which is Luke's fuller treatment of the ascension, and I recommend that you read it sometime this week, he says in, in Acts 1-9, when Luke is talking about the ascension, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, And while the disciples were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What do you mean, why do we stand looking into heaven? (laughs) Our Savior just went up there. Where else do you want us to be looking? Although the ascension is such an essential part of Scripture and our salvation, it's oftentimes neglected because it's just so utterly confusing. It's so confusing why our Savior would depart. As one author put it, this would be the equivalent of taking out your best player right at the start of the fourth quarter. Why would this happen? So how did the disciples go from that confusion, being so confused about Jesus leaving, to now joy about Jesus leaving? And how can we start going from confusion to joy as well? Well, it starts with that word in Luke 24, heaven. You see, Jesus didn't say that Jesus went up into the heavens, that he went way up into the sky. He went into heaven. And that means for us that Jesus' leaving wasn't a departure. It was actually an arrival. You notice in the Acts passage, it mentions that Jesus was lifted up. And when he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. And whenever a cloud is mentioned like that in Scripture, it's always talking about God's presence, his power. Think about Moses on Mount Sinai. When he would go to meet with the Lord, a cloud would shield him from their sight. Because he was meeting with the very presence of Yahweh. You see, the ascension isn't that Jesus was just blasting off into sky. It wasn't like he was a spaceship blasting off into outer space, going farther and farther away from them. He was actually going into the very presence of God into heaven, the control center of everything. This is where God rules the entire cosmos, both the heavens and the earth. And so Jesus going into heaven isn't him going farther away. It's his magnification to you right now. And this can be a little hard to wrap our heads around. That Jesus wasn't just going to a different place in the sky, but he was going to a different plane altogether. So maybe this illustration will help. C.S. Lewis said this, and this is, is, is often, he's the best at these things, but in 1961, the Russians sent the first man to space. And when that man returned to Earth, his first report was, 
I looked and looked and looked in the space, but I never saw God. So God was not up there in space. That means that God does not exist. Here's what C.S. Lewis responded to that report. I'm told of a report that the Russians have not found God in outer space. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every single moment in every single play, but he's not present in the same way as Hamlet or Lady Macbeth. If there is a God, we would not relate to him the way a person on the first story of a house relates to a person on a second story of a house. You see, when Jesus ascended into heaven, it wasn't like he went from the downstairs to the upstairs. It was like he went from the world of Hamlet to the world of Shakespeare. C.S. Lewis continues, God is not someone who merely lives in the sky. He is at the center of it all. Our relationship to God is more like Hamlet's relationship to Shakespeare. We will not find God by going higher up. We'll only know about God if he's revealed himself to us down here. And that's what the ascension does, doesn't it? It's not the subtraction of Jesus. It's the magnification of Jesus. Because he's no longer just in one place at one time. He is in the heavens with God in his presence at the control center of everything. That's why Augustine so beautifully wrote, and it's on, the, it's on the front of your order of worship. You ascended before our eyes and we turned back grieving only now to find you in our hearts. We'll see more of that next week with Pentecost when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and we find out how Jesus now reveals himself to us, not just beside of us, but inside of us. But for right now, the ascension can seem so confusing because we can't understand why Jesus would go away. But in his ascension, Jesus is not going away. He is going to heaven, the center of it all. So what's that look like? We've seen the confusion of the ascension Now let's look at the confidence of the ascension. Look back at verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Like we just saw, the confusion of the ascension is found in Jesus parting from them. Your confidence this morning will come come when you realize what Jesus departed to do. You see, from our view in Luke 24, from the ground, it just looks like Jesus is going away. It looks like a departure, but from God's view, it was the arrival of the true king. That's why our Old Testament reading was Psalm 110. And you might know this, but Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted verse in all the New Testament. It's quoted more than any other verse for this very reason, because it tells the church exactly what Jesus is doing right now. Psalm 110.1, David is talking And he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What did Jesus ascend into heaven to do? He ascended to sit down at God's right hand. This is Jesus' coronation ceremony. And we just got to experience one of those, didn't we? The whole world got to experience a coronation ceremony, the first one in a very long time with King Charles. But in Jesus' time what would happen is kings would go out to battle and oftentimes when they won a battle on behalf of their people, they would come back victoriously and they'd come back to a coronation ceremony. 
The people would be out in the streets. They'd be celebrating. And that ceremony would culminate in that king sitting down on his throne. Not to rest, but to rule. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus did not ascend into heaven to rest. He ascended into heaven to rule on your behalf. He won our victory in his humiliation. He has taken on flesh. He has suffered under the miseries of this world. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And he came out conquering the grave. And now the ascension is not separate from all that. It's the coronation of all that. Jesus, our King, who has won our victory, now sits down at the right hand of God. As one biblical scholar puts it, if the resurrection proclaims that he lives in that forever, the ascension proclaims that he reigns in that forever. The good news of the ascension is that your Jesus is King, and he reigns not just now, but forever. So where is Jesus? What is Jesus doing right now? He is seated at God's right hand, the place of all authority. And one of your biggest needs this morning is you desperately need to see him sitting there. As many of y'all can remember, 9-11, September 11th, was one of the most scary and confusing times for our country. It was an attack on our own soil. It was an attack that completely caught us off guard. It made us feel so vulnerable. And for the 20th anniversary, Apple Plus released a documentary back in 2021 called 9-11 in the War Room. And it was a fascinating documentary because many documentaries had shown 9-11 from the point of view of of American citizens, had shown it from the point of view of the, the first responders, the point of view from people in New York, from people in Washington. But this documentary showed the point of view of our president. It went through the entire day of what President Bush was doing and what was happening with him. And it was crazy. It went from them breaking the news to him, reading those books to the first graders, to them rushing him onto Air Force One, to him flying all over different places, them trying to figure out, is there going to be more attacks? Is there going to be attacks on us, on, the Air, on Air Force One? And they were constantly trying to figure out, how can we get the president out of sight? How can we get the president into hiding where he can be safe? But the documentary shows what President Bush wanted to do. And you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to go sit in his chair in the Oval Office. Why? Here's what he said. It is my job as president to be in that chair for the American people, to see me and know that I'm trying my best to protect them from evil. And he was right. On September 11th, when everything was confusing and chaotic, what did we need? We desperately need to see our leader sitting in his chair, not running, but ruling. Listen to me this morning. You do too. You desperately need to see that Jesus is not running from what's going on in your life. He is sitting on his throne and he rules over it. He is not running from this. He is ruling it. The ascension of Jesus Christ shows us that Jesus alone is in charge. Not your circumstances, not your fears, not your sins, not even your suffering is in charge. 
That's one of the hardest parts about suffering, isn't it? One of the hardest parts about going through suffering is you feel like it's constantly in charge of your life. It dictates all the circumstances. Why can't I just get over this? Why do I keep feeling this way? Why does it hurt and hurt and hurt? Look up and see Jesus on his throne. Your suffering ultimately answers to him. So you can actually take your time with your suffering. You can be patient with your grieving. You can hurt and cry out and plead because your suffering may last a lifetime, but his reign is going to last forever. You see, there is no better news than the ascension because the ascension tells us exactly where our Jesus is. He is our king and he is reigning from the right hand of God. And it keeps getting better because our king is not like earthly kings. He doesn't rule with an iron fist. If you look back at the passage, he actually rules with arms uplifted. Let's finish there now. We've seen the confusion of the ascension. We've looked at the confidence of the ascension. Now let's finish by looking at the great comfort that this brings to us. What kind of king do we have? One final time, let's look back at verse 50. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, And lifting up his hands, like we do every week in the benediction, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Do you see the importance of the ascension? The ascension tells us that Jesus is not only your king, your king is Jesus this morning. Isn't this passage the most Jesus thing ever? As he's ascended into heaven on his coronation day, the day that he has earned, we didn't earn it. It is his victory, not our victory. The day that he is ascending to the throne in heaven to take his rightful place by God the Father Almighty, he turns and blesses his people with uplifted hands that are still nail scarred. What kind of king does that? A king that's also your priest. This is what makes the ascension so special because it's not just the coronation of Jesus as our king. It's the care for eternity of Jesus as your priest. You see in the Old Testament, the priests were the ones that were in charge of the sacrifices. The sacrifices for the sins of the people. They were put in charge of these. And oftentimes, after those sacrifices were made, the priest would then turn and deliver a blessing for the people. And that blessing was more than just sentiment. It was more than just good words. It was like our benediction at the end of the service. It was a declaration that God's presence was actually going to be with them. It was a declaration that their sins had actually been forgiven. And Jesus, as he ascends into heaven, decides to pronounce a blessing upon his people, showing them and showing us this morning that he himself has actually become our blessing. Don't you see? In the person and work of Jesus, he is the benediction from God. He is the one that shows us time and time again how much God actually cares about us. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humanity to dwell among them in his presence. And that's what he did in the garden. He was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
But when they sin, they are cast out of that garden, as you remember, because his holy presence could no longer dwell with a sinful people. So that becomes the central question of the Bible. The central question of the Bible is how can a holy God dwell again with a sinful people? So in the Old Testament, you have sacrifices. You have a lot of them. Sacrifice after sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people, and they were never enough until Jesus shows up as the God-man, the ultimate sacrifice. And now, just like the priests in the Old Testament, he's taking that sacrifice that he made, his own body, and he's bringing it into the very presence of God for your full and final salvation. When Jesus, our priest, goes into the presence of God, he brings our names with him. Your salvation and your life is as secure as Jesus is in heaven. And listen to me, he is not leaving. In fact, he will never leave heaven. Because we read in Revelation 22 that when God comes to make all things right, Jesus doesn't leave heaven, he brings heaven with him on earth. Do you see now why the disciples responded the way they did? While they're overcome with great joy, they wanted to bless the God that blessed them. They wanted to worship Jesus as their risen king. And that's your application this morning too. Listen, I know a lot of your stories right now. I know a lot of the things that you're going through. I know the world has given you so much to worry about right in this very moment. But the application of Jesus' ascension is that you really can worship him in your worry. The ascension didn't make the disciples' lives easier, but they knew in their hearts what we're about to sing at the end of this service, that their life was now hidden with Christ on high, and the world could never take that from them. As Will mentioned, Tim Keller passed away on Friday, and I never personally got to meet him, but I'm sure like several of you all, he has deeply influenced my life and ministry from afar. In college, when I first became a Christian, I was amazed at his teaching and his preaching and his books and so many ideas that he gave to the world. But what's been amazing to me from afar, and again, I don't know him personally, but what's been amazing to me from afar is since his cancer diagnosis, he has worshipped. In fact, he did an interview with Russell Moore a couple years ago, this, and it was a year after he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, a year after being told that you're not going to make it very much longer. And at the end of the interview, Russell Moore asked him, if you had one word of advice for younger Christians out there that are scared, that are nervous about the ways of the world and the future, what would you say to them? And you know what he said? He said, you know, since my diagnosis, I've cried a lot. I've grieved a lot. He said even the night before, he stayed up late at night with his wife, Kathy, crying about the short time that he had left this family. But here's what he said. Here's his advice for us. If Jesus Christ is actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, if he is reigning, you know what? Everything is going to be all right. Whatever you're worried about, whatever you're afraid of, is actually going to be okay at the end because all those things are on a clock. Tim Keller was able to respond to pancreatic cancer with worship 
because he knew in his heart that Jesus was risen and is reigning. Do you see the confidence in this? Do you see the great comfort in this? I hope you do, because you're going to need it. Martin Luther said it best. He said, when the devil tempts you to despair, throwing your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Where is Jesus this morning? He is risen and reigning at God's right hand. And Christian, where he is, you shall be also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths are too big for words. And so I pray by your spirit, you pour it into our hearts. That would be rooted in the historical reality that you are risen and reigning. And that in the midst of great worry and great discomfort and great suffering and great sin, that you lift us up to you. That we may see you and worship you in the majesty of your glory. And now we pray as you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.